So you drove down mm-hmm. yesterday? Yeah, last well, yesterday afternoon. Did you live in Klamath or yep. where do you live at? Yep. Just born, out born and bred? Nope. Uh, born outside of Seattle. Uh, moved to Eugene, Oregon in the middle of high school. And then from there, went all across the country playing baseball in college. Nice. And um, and then... Uh, what position you play? I was a pitcher. Oh, very nice. So, <clears throat> um, but uh, after that, I started my career in water and kind of kind of worked my way all around Oregon, starting up in Pendleton and then moved down to the lower John Day Basin, uh, Condon, Fossil area, and then ended up in Klamath Falls in 2011. So when you said started a career in water, what, is, what does that mean? <clears throat> well, I started with the Oregon Water Resources Department. Um, I can't even remember the year now, but it was uh, I was a well inspector. So started in groundwater and worked my way into a water master position, regulating water on the lower John Day Basin, um, and then took a lateral transfer down to Klamath because it seemed exciting uh, just because of the water issues going on there. And exciting is really an understatement, to be frank, but um, that's really kind of how my career unfolded. What's your education background? Is it environmental science uh, is my undergrad, and I also have an MBA. Okay, nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, well... I'd like to formally, you know, invite everybody that's listening in to know who we're talking to. So across the table from me, we have Scott with KDD Klamath Drainage District. And then next to him is Mark Henley, CWA, of course, been on this podcast before. And to the left is Jeff Smith, my other co-host. So we're going to be touching on all sorts of topics today that involve water, Klamath, the whole state, um, and kind of kind of where where we're at. So let's just say current time, What's what are we looking at in... As far as KDD is concerned, in the Klamath Basin, what what were we looking at? Uh, well, currently, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've gone from 35% snowpack up to 90. I think the highest we hit was 96% snowpack. As of this morning when I looked, we're back down to 85. Um, <clears throat> but it is looking like we got some precip out on the out on the forecast coming. So keeping our fingers crossed, that keeps, keeps coming, keeps filling up our lake. Um, I think the real interesting thing about what's coming up in 2024 is um, what, and, and I don't know the answer to this, but what does this look like with dam removal? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. as as you all or as most, I think, know, four dams on the Klamath River uh, were blown in the last few weeks. And uh, so now we have a, a live connected river again, with the exception of two, Link River Dam, which is the dam that holds up uh, Upper Klamath Lake, and then Keno Dam, which holds what's what's considered Lake Awana right there, just outside of Klamath Falls, in between Keno and Klamath Falls. Um, <clears throat> so, that being said, um, there is ESA consultation ongoing today, um, and we're not quite sure how that's going to work out, but we are engaged in those conversations. Uh, and trying to uh, just trying to put a model together, if you will, that that will work for a new river system, and obviously all legs of the stool that, that need water, being the species, um, uh, both the sucker and and the coho and the river, and and then as well as the contractors, which are the water users. Yeah, do we have any ideas of how the dam removals are going to affect the waters, or it's still just completely up in the air, no guesses? Or do we have a direction that they're going? Well, I I think. I think people have an idea. Um, I think if there wasn't an idea, it would never have happened, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I think the hope is that it will improve the water quality, which in turn will 
increase the the overall beneficial habitat for these species that are threatened. Um, and and I would say all salmon. I mean, we want all the fish to to do better as a result because yeah. really, as one of my board members likes to say, the fish have our water and we want it back. And so uh, so you know, if we start seeing actual recovery in these species, then then we should start seeing the benefit. And frankly, that's what we've been told all along as water users is is once these dams come out, we should be in a better position because it will require less water in the river, therefore more water coming back to the water users. So potentially some of these species could be delisted if that's a success, right? I think that's ultimately the goal. Uh, yeah. The unfortunate thing about the ESA is it's it's not intended to recover species. It's intended to um, – um, I can't I can't remember the exact language that it's written as, but it's basically written in a way to where you can't further jeopardize the the species, not necessarily recovery. So recovery has to be another effort outside of uh, ESA consultation. So the benefit is I think all parties right now are wanting to talk recovery. And so recovery is actually uh, it's 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 quite the topic right now, especially with all the the money that's being thrown around at at the federal level, you know, people are really talking about how what can we do with this money to actually start restoring the basin for the benefit of these species. And uh, I think the beauty of that is it's not just necessarily restoring the basin for the species, it's restoring the basin for all parties, really. I mean, when you think about restoration, I mean, there's very, very few or there's very many parties, excuse me, that, that benefit, not just fish. I think you've got, you know, water users that are going to benefit, birds are going to benefit, especially when we're talking about restoration activities down on the refuges. Um, so I think just a healthy ecosystem means a healthy basin, means a healthy society. Um, so that's just my own personal opinion. But it seems to be like we're going in that direction, which is it's nice. It's fun to talk about. Yeah. Do we have a, a plan? I know replumb the Klamath has kind of come up. What, what does that entail? Yeah, that's a concept that uh, we started throwing together in conversations with uh, with refuge folks uh, as well as some other parties. Uh, to date, there's a handful of us that are coming together and starting to try and put together what that might look like um, and, and taking concept to hopefully reality. Uh, what that, in general, what that means, though, is we have Klamath Drainage District has two points of diversion off of the Klamath River. One is the North Canal, one is the AD Canal. What we're proposing in this concept is to connect the 80 Canal from the river to Unit 2 in Lower Klamath National oh, Wildlife oh, Refuge. Yeah. So so now what we're looking at is basically Unit 2 becomes a live arm, if you will, of, of Lower Klamath Lake and what it used to be. Um, and so... Right now, what we're looking at is is the feasibility of it, elevation wise. Obviously, there's a there's a, some major roadways along the, along mm -hmm. there, and uh, some other infrastructure that we really have to look at and see if we can even pull something like this off. But um, we've got money coming in. I heard we've got 1.8 million coming in April, if I'm not mistaken, to help us continue with the feasibility. We've already got lidar flown. Uh, or fresh LIDAR, so we're going to be looking at real up-to-date elevation stuff to see, you know, what an inundation map like might look like and, and things like that. So um, that that concept really should start taking shape here in the very near future. Um, but uh, but we're talking about other things just in addition to the 
to the connection. I mean, we're looking at our private lands and seeing what we can do potentially if the price is right for our landowners to kind of treat those as some of the, some of the, um, um, floodplain type activity stuff mm -hmm. along, along the canal, maybe even elsewhere where, if it makes sense to where, you know, kind of mimic some of the stuff we're doing down here in the rice fields, you know, and growing fish food, if you will, or mm -hmm. even potentially having fish habitat out on our private grounds. So we're exploring all those options and, um, seeing what we can put together. And, and of course, having unit two flooded on a, like a semi-permanent or permanent basis, that would provide a huge <laughs> benefit for our, our local ducks in terms of not just breeding, but molting. Yeah. So, I mean, that spring and summer water to me is one of the most important um, things that we can do to try to make things right up there at the refuge because a lot of our local mallards really depend on that water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when unit two is wet, it is very productive. A lot of birds can be brought off of there. So to me, this is uh, a great, a great news. I mean, if they're able to eventually do it, I think it's going to really benefit us. Yeah. For the, for the people that aren't super familiar with Klamath, can you kind of describe when you're talking about unit two, where it is on the refuge opposed to like the sump and everything? Sure. Like yeah. So it's right there off of the state, the state line highway, right as you come in um, from the you know, the west as you're traveling towards uh, Tule Lake. And uh, it straddles the California-Oregon border. And when we do get water for, you know, lower Klamath, typically that's the first unit that uh, you get water into. It's, it's the main sanctuary unit. Yeah. It's a very large unit, right too. There on the I think it's over 1,000 acres, right, Scott? Oh, yeah. It's got to be at least uh, that. Yeah. Yeah, if not double. Yeah, but it, it's a great, uh, yeah, not only a good area to breed birds, to have molting habitat, but just to hold birds generally. So you have that flooded up. If there's hunting around that area, it, it definitely tends to benefit from uh, the birds that are held there. So, yeah, and for the most recent history, it's been basically dry yeah, for the most part. Other than the small amounts of water that we've gotten in there right. over the last few years. You know. Yep. Yeah, and I know just driving up there, that units, the way we always came in was the first thing that you kind of saw, you know, yeah. and it was like, oh, wow, a lot of birds here. You know, it was always kind of a, an eye-popping moment. Um, so to go up there and to see that, you know, dry in the wintertime is is pretty sad, actually. But. Yeah, it's, I remember being up there, junior hunts and stuff, and coming back across state line and those birds hopping out of two and going to the grain fields, yeah. just black with birds. And same thing, yeah. you, you go up there now and, there's like a coot in the ditch and a little tiny piece of water that's still <laughs> left there. It's like, what happened? Yep. But obviously we're working our way, you know, back to as much as it could be potentially back yep. to what it was. Well, you know, I would, I would just add to that and saying that <clears throat> what two years ago, I think it was the first year that the refuge closed hunting mm -hmm. out there on, on lower Klamath and to Lake. Um, and, uh, that just can't happen. That yeah. can't happen. I mean, to to actually be a water manager in the Klamath Basin for the first time in history that they close hunting on the refuges doesn't feel very good. You know, yeah. that's not something you want to put on your resume. Yeah. Um, and so knowing that we're planning to hopefully avoid that ever happening again, I mean, that's something you get to go home and you, you fall asleep to pretty easily knowing that, that you're working on that kind of stuff. 
Um, and we're not the only one. I shouldn't say that. There's a handful of people, and it's really exciting to get people around the table talking about how to never let that happen again. Yeah, yeah so. that's one of the questions that I kind of have, and maybe it's a <clears throat> devil's advocate question. Is just like, you know, CIBA has their own thing. We want to purchase water rights and get get water there. KDD sounds like you know you want to do the replumb and getting so. Where is the mutual ground achieved between these organizations? Or is there, you know, everybody's kind of going to go try to do their own thing to achieve the same goal that everybody's going after? Like, what's, is there cross-lines communication with you guys and CWA and Ducks Unlimited? Or is it all, hey, we're going to try to do it this way and we're going to try to do it this way and then whoever does it, hooray? That's that's an interesting question. Um, I don't know the answer, but what mm-hmm. I can tell you is my sense is a lot of people are really starting to focus in on the ecosystem as a whole. And so when you focus in on the ecosystem, really there's no wrong answer. You're focused on what the right thing to do is. And the right thing to do is going to benefit, you know, whether we're looking at fish, well, um, the consequence of focusing on fish on the refuge is it's good for the birds too, right? It's good for the water users who are trying to grow stuff just up north and keeping the birds down there so they're not devastating our crops as they're trying to grow. Um, there's mutual benefits when we start looking at uh, groundwater inputs, you know, and the recharge that we're, I mean, we're seeing it firsthand over in Tule Lake, subsidence starting to occur. I mean, that's a scary thing. To witness, you know, and so when we're starting to talk about an ecosystem, it's doing the right thing, and the and the consequences as, re, as a result are all positive. At least when I'm looking at this, so um, the beauty of that is is really people who are starting who have been really focused on one thing are starting to look at the big picture, and as a result, we're all kind of coming around the same table, looking like, hey, this benefits me, this benefits you, and you, and you, and you. Mm-hmm. So. It's it's a cool it's a cool moment we're living in, and really, I, I tell I tell folks this occasionally. You know, like I'm not sure if we're here if if those refuges didn't go dry. I'm not sure if we're here if they did cancel or didn't cancel hunting because those those types of things, although they're hard to say, they're hard to witness. I'm seeing good come from that, and and I'm hoping that good lasts at least for my entire career and hopefully beyond. You know, through my grandkids, so. Anyway, I'll, I'll pause yeah, there. No, yeah. That's yeah. And I would say the, the main you know thing that we've been partnering with KDD on, and I can't thank Scott and KDD enough, is this agricultural drain water that they typically have in, what, February and March, and making that available to the refuge. I mean, that's been a huge shot in the arm. You know, we, we've talked before about our water rights acquisition and some mm-hmm. other things that we've done, but having that water then there in March and then into April as kind of a basis for unit two to, to kind of be flooded up, um, that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the spring and summer. So what they have done essentially is provided some breeding and molting habitat uh, over on the lower Klamath side. And really that's the only habitat over there. I mean, the rest yeah. of the refuge is basically dry. So if it wasn't from there, you know, because of their efforts, um, if we did not have them doing this, uh, we would essentially have a dry refuge. Yeah, and and I know for the first little bit of this conversation, we've talked about, hey, this is how we're going to fix it, and this is what's going on. Let's take a step back and talk about how did we get ourselves in this position? Because you know, we've just discussed all of our plans for the future to get it back, but what what happened? 
see if I can do this without <laughs> without pointing fingers too sternly at anybody. Um, you know, I mentioned I mentioned the Endangered Species Act, and um, you know, I'll, I'll take everybody back to two thousand one. And two thousand one was a year where we had two biological opinions: one for sucker, one for coho. They competed with each other, and they butt heads. And they, a, a judge actually finally ruled on this thing that there is not enough water for everybody, and you guys need to split it between suckers and coho, and there is nothing for water users, period. So that was the first year in history there was no water for, for the Klamath Reclamation Project. It was shut down. Um, eventually, I think it was in the month of July, a little bit of water. But by then, it's too late, right? I mean, everybody who's trying to start can't start on time. You know, we have a very limited growing season up there. Um, and so it was too late. Um, but that was when, you know, we got a lot of national attention. You know, there was media out there. It was all over the country what was going on there. The famous Bucket Brigade, right? Yep. Um, <clears throat> I would say... You know, there were some things that led up to that moment, but that was really the start of kind of highlighting the issues that are going on. So one good thing that came from that is that the two competing biological opinions in the United States wisdom said, why don't we do a joint biological opinion? Let's bring no marine fisheries in with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Reclamation and talk about how do we do this all under one document? Um, Well, that's technically not accurate. It's still multiple documents, but they started working together. Um, but unfortunately, as a result, and, and it didn't help that we started moving into a drier, um, yeah. you know, uh, climate. Um, as a result, um, science, quote unquote, best available science started pointing that more water was needed in the river, higher lake elevations in the lake. As a result, you know, we already know what growers need for for growing stuff, but it's, you know, our crops are not on the endangered species list. So um, as a result, just less and less water was coming out to the project. And when I say the Klamath Reclamation Project, that includes the refuge. The refuges are part of the Klamath Reclamation Project. They have water rights um, just the way that, you know, everybody does out on the project. They just don't have contracts with the Bureau of Reclamation. So <clears throat> they've always kind of been viewed as kind of last in line to get to get water, um, and so getting, getting into this drier climate, uh, that's less and less water going out into the Klamath Reclamation Project to maintain lake elevations and maintain river flows. And, uh, you know, being drought after drought after drought, the way we've been having, unfortunately, the refuge just wasn't getting anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we all saw in the last couple of years, we saw dry mud flats, you know, as a result. So it's just, um, it's, it's a compounding effects over time. And we just, we just finally hit hopefully rock bottom and we're starting to starting to crawl our way back out. I'll just add to that. Um, you know, another thing that really affected the amount of water, at least over on the lower Klamath side was there was a water compact, excuse me, a, a power compact that expired and so the electrical rates went way up. And so, of course, a big part of getting water over the lower Klamath side is pumping through deep plant through the hill, right? And so, you know, there also has been less water going over to the Thule Lake side over time as well. So that's definitely, you know, been a, a problem. But just the, uh, 
you know, expensive uh, cost of pumping mm-hmm. through the hill has really then um, created a disincentive then to flood the lower Klamath side. Up. So, yeah, I mean, there's just a whole bunch of different factors that have kind of all combined in a yeah. nasty way to, to create the situation that we have today. That's a really good point. I, um, you know, we, it, it, you say that we, we become more efficient um, because those power rates have increased the way they have. But in reality, the system hasn't become more efficient because, you know, the project ran, its efficiency was ran on reusing that water. Well, you got to pump to reuse that water. I mean, there, there's reports out there that say we use water three and a half times within the Klamath Reclamation Project. And that includes going through the refuge and its uses that occurred out on the refuge. But when you, when you raise your power rates like that, we actually become less efficient because now we've got, we've got growers on farm saying, well, I got to, I got to be more efficient on farm, which means we don't get the returns. And then you've got districts like mine as an example and, and Tule Lake, we got to get more efficient on districts so we don't have to use these massive pumps, you know? So we put in recirculation pumping plants to be able to reuse our, our water on the district instead of using those massive pumps to get them back out to the river because it costs more money to get it out to the river. So as a result, there's less water getting into the river which means there's there's more water being used out of Upper Klamath Lake to meet river flows. So as a result, it's a it's a net loss to the system in terms of water efficiency, um, and we're doing it to be power efficient, which is which is really kind of a it's a catch twenty two. I mean, we're just forced into that situation because of higher power rates, um, which is unfortunate. The whole the whole system suffers as a result. Yeah. yeah. Now, with the increase of the river flows and the uh, higher elevations of the lakes, have those species benefited in a positive way? Um, I'm going to say no. Yeah. The data, and really, and that's just factual, the data does not suggest that there's any recovery going on. Um, what, there are certain years where you see you know, recruitment occurring and things like that, especially in, in your salmonids in the river. Um, I think those are conditions that are just occurring naturally. Um, but but data-wise, it's not suggesting that, that more water actually equals more fish um, at this point. That's my opinion. I'm sure somebody, if there was a phone line, would call it right <laughs> now and, and, and call and argue with me on that. Um, from what I read and what I, how I understand it, I don't, I don't see it. Um, yeah. Now... Is there hope on the horizon? Absolutely. You know, I think I think that if 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 every what everybody's saying or the bio, the biologists are saying that dams coming out is going to improve water quality, which means less habitat is going to be required. Um, you know, temperatures should be cooler in the river, which is really good for for uh, uh, you know curbing the the sea shasta disease that's in mm-hmm. the in the river. If all of that starts occurring, then yeah, we should start seeing seeing better recruitment in our salmonids. Um, I think from a sucker perspective, I don't know if anybody really knows what's going on there. Yeah. Um, but you know, the beauty of the suckers is we're now utilizing the refuges again as home to the suckers. We've actually got suckers out on lower Klamath now, uh, which there are traditional spawning streams on lower Klamath, uh, for suckers. So, you know, fingers crossed, we start seeing some recovery going on with the suckers down there on, on the refuge. Um, because I think Upper Klamath Lake is just a, it's just a massive 
black hole. We don't know what's going on. You know, these fish, they grow up to a certain age and they disappear. And so, you know, eventually, you know, these, these mature sucker, they're going to die off, you know? And and so um, it's scary to think about, but it's, you know, there's, I'm optimistic that the refuges are there to kind of hang on to that species for a while until we get that figured out up there. With all the dam removals, does much change on upper lake in terms of depth and all that? Is the lake going to stay essentially the same it is now or will it go down or up or? Um, that's a good question. There's, there's, I mean, as I noted earlier, ESA consultations ongoing, um, right now. And, you know, there's been proposals out there to look at lake elevations. Um, the, the right answer is I don't know at this yeah. point. Um, there has not been a proposed action written by the Bureau of Reclamation yet or biological opinions in response. Um, it's being looked at. Uh, river flows are being looked at. Um, refuges are being looked at. Basically, everybody who needs water wants water. All of it's being looked at. Yeah. And so <clears throat> um, I don't know is the right answer right now. Is there a t- a rough timeline on any of this with, you know, in, in your mind, in your professional opinion, it's like, what's five years now, 10 years now, 20 years now, what's the timeline of like, hey, this this might actually happen? And I know now we're in the part where everybody's kind of figuring out, oh, we're, you know, communicating with each other, sucker fish, this and that. But in your opinion, dealing with water, what's the timeline where it's like, hey, you know, unit two now is going to be full and it's going to be full for the foreseeable future. And we're working now to get water further into the refuge. But what's what's a feasible? Um, Well, as I noted, we got one point eight million to continue our feasibility on this. My hope or my push would be to have that done by the end of the year. Oh, wow. Um, You know, and have an actual plan on paper and and really starting to lobby for the implementation funds to get that going. Um, we've partnered with, well, many, uh, Yurok tribe, namely, um, who is really active. The Klamath tribes are, are very much supportive of this concept, um, as well as Modoc Nation, who they've bought a ranch now on the southeast end of Lower Klamath uh, Refuge, which is exciting. I mean, that's their, that's their homeland. Uh, they want to see water down there again, and so... Having them as a neighbor has been a really, really good thing for for our neighborhood, if you will. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so having those folks in our camp and pushing to get this done has been a real blessing. And and uh, and so I I have all the confidence in the world that we'll be able to push this across the finish line. So long so long as the feasibility pans out and it make and it does work, um, and that's a key thing. We need to make sure that that this is going to work to begin with. What's, what's the biggest worry of yours that's not going to work? I think just elevation. I mean, okay. now if I, I mean, hypothetically, let's say the river level is above state line road. Well, what are we looking to do there? Do we, are we looking to raise the road? Are we going to build a bridge? Are we going to build, what are we going to do? And, and so when you start thinking like that, you start thinking about implementation dollars and, oh my goodness, can we afford this? Should we do this? Um, and so, um, I think that's in my mind some of our biggest our biggest uh, obstacles is is just uh, infrastructure that may be in the way. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. yeah. So everybody hears you know water in Klamath, water in Klamath, Tule Lake. This that. is there other areas of the state that have other water issues that people should be aware of or at least you know on the radar. 
Yeah, I mean, I would say water, when it comes to the, obviously waterfowl habitat in California, it's the biggest issue out there. Um, it's There's just now so much competition for available supplies and, of course, regulations now related to endangered species. As much as we have endangered species uh, issues down in the Klamath Basin, we also have them throughout the rest of California as well. So uh, that's something that's going to be there for a long, long time. So, yeah, a few issues I would say that are, are really important in other parts of the state. Um, one would be uh, probably some of folks have heard about the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And so that was passed, I think, back in 2014 by our state legislature and signed into law. That basically um, focuses on overdrafted groundwater basins and requires that those basins, you know, be sustainably managed. And in order to do that, then it puts uh, restrictions on the amount of groundwater that you can pump as well as associated fees. And so that's all starting to be implemented now. I think the the goal is to have it fully implemented in 2040. Um, but we're already seeing clubs, duck clubs, down in the Tulare Basin and even in the East Grasslands where you do have some overdraft, uh, basically saying, hey, in a few years, I'm not going to be able to flood my duck club anymore. I'm not going to be able to do this because the, the pumping restrictions are too harsh and I can't pay all the associated fees. Um, so it could really, in the long term, result in a major loss of wetlands um, in certain parts of the state. So that's a worry. Yeah, huge um, worry. The good thing is we have a bill that we're working on with some of our other waterfowl partners. It's in the state legislature right now. It's AB 828. Um, and that would provide an exemption for managed wetlands from it's called SIGMA is the acronym for uh, the Groundwater Management Act. Um, and essentially, managed wetlands would be able to uh, be exempted from any of the pumping restrictions, and they also would not have to pay the fees. Oh, wow. Um, it's only uh, uh, would be in place for about a three-year period. Our hope is that if we could get the bill through the legislature, get it signed into law, then work you know, on trying to make it permanent in the future, but at least it would provide some temporary relief for these clubs and not only affects clubs, but also even state wildlife yeah. areas. If they're in an overdrafted basin, they would um, be impacted as well. So the only real uh, wetlands that are not impacted by Sigma would be those owned by the federal government. So a national wildlife refuge. So um, like Kern Refuge would be yeah they that. would be exempt from it but uh, uh, the the bill right now it's actually pending on the assembly floor and we're supposed to have a vote on it today oh wow so hopefully so it'll get over soon to, we'll know yeah over to the state then it'll go to the state senate have to go through that pro same process and then it would go to the governor are we so, feeling confident on that or. We, there's a little bit of opposition uh, from some of the other groups that are affected by Sigma, including some farm groups. Um, you know, it's like if we're going to get an exemption, why shouldn't they get an exemption? So I understand yeah. that. Um, although the wetlands are really a small, very small portion of all the groundwater used. And, of course, wetlands, too, have a lot of recharge benefits, right? Because yeah, we're that's flooding up in of, yeah. late fall and into winter when you get that recharge going. So it's a little bit apples to orange. but 
we're sensitive, obviously, to any kind of impact on agriculture. Um, so, yeah, we'll just see how it goes, and um, hopefully we can, can get it done. We'll know by, you know, uh, probably late September, early October, whether it made it or not. Where's the cutoff line, like, in terms of location of the state where that does not, um, let's call it, you know, Butte County is out of that opposed to Kern County. I mean, where in the state does that end for Sigma? Well, in in terms of each basin, you know, they look at it, whether it's overdraft or not, and, you know, what its groundwater challenges are. So Sacramento Valley, as you know, is in pretty good shape as it pertains to yeah. groundwater. So we're just talking about the Tulare Basin then? Yeah. So the, the main ones that have come up so far, Tulare Basin, uh, East Grasslands, and then also up in... Um, uh, what is it? Well, it's northeastern California, be Siskiyou County, around like Butte Valley oh, wildlife yeah, yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. So they're going through a lot of uh, Sigma work right now, and you know, that's another area that we want to make sure that like Butte Valley wildlife area, Shasta Valley, that they stay whole. Mm-hmm. So it's important also to get this bill through to to protect them. Got it. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me to hear about that because. You know, on the forefront is Klamath to Lake, Klamath to Lake, Klamath to Lake. But there's other water issues through the states that people should probably be aware of because, like you said, yeah. in the next future years, it could be affecting a lot of people's huntings, and no they, have, they have no clue about it at this point. Yeah. So I'll, I'll mention a couple others. Um, a lot of folks know about the Central Valley Project Improvement Act. We would love a similar act up in the Klamath Basin, but, of course, that never happened. But that helps to ensure water supplies for refuges and then duck clubs down in the, the Merced County in the grasslands, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very critical component to wetland conservation in California. Well, there are some folks in Washington, D.C. that want to gut that program. And unfortunately, there's a bill by uh, Congressman uh, David Valadeo. He represents the San Joaquin Valley that uh, just passed the House of Representatives a couple months ago that essentially will gut the CVPIA. And it, it basically, the legislation deems it complete. So no longer would the federal government have to mitigate for the impacts of the Central Valley Project. So if that were then to pass the Senate and be signed into law, which right now I do not think is likely, given the political dynamics at play, um, that would be a devastating loss to, to what we do here in California in terms of our waterfowl conservation efforts and hunting opportunity as well. I mean, yeah. all of these refuges, you know, yeah, they, they pump groundwater as well. The groundwater only goes so far. You can't rely on that wholly for your, for your supplies. So we got to make sure that this bill dies a, a death here soon. Um, we'll see what the election's coming up. You know, after this fall, we may have a totally new dynamic in D.C. We're just afraid that... Uh, if the dynamics change enough, that could give this kind of legislation more legs. So we're watching it very closely, and we'll be back in Washington, D.C. the first week of March lobbying heavily against it. So, you know, we're going to have to definitely step our step up our efforts in D.C. to make sure that that bill, you know, doesn't move. And then I'll, I'll give you an example here of where <laughs> too much water can be problematic. So. Yeah. Sometimes that's the case, you know, <clears throat> particularly when you get endangered species, you know, involved with the, the management of water supplies. So everybody's familiar, of course, with the Yolo Basin. We have the Yolo Wildlife Area there, which is a huge 
public hunting program. Uh, we also have a number of duck clubs there. There is a project that's been ongoing to put a notch in the Fremont Weir, mm-hmm. and that would allow um, the state to flood the Yolo Bypass for longer durations and at a deeper elevation than what it currently is operated as. And this, frankly, is going to you know, basically put Yolo Wildlife Area underwater for much longer periods of time. The duck clubs down in that area, too, are going to be inundated. You know, probably half of their season is going to be lost if they operate this this weir in, in, the, in, a, in a new way that, you know, is, again, trying to – It's the whole purpose of it is to increase habitat for fish, for salmon, right? So they have more places uh, for their young, you know, fry to go to – stock up on resources. Those floodplains are very good for fish, mm-hmm. and we, we recognize that. But um, unfortunately, this is a case of a salmon project that could really hurt waterfowl. And so it's all going to be about how they operate that weir. And we've been just trying to you know provide our input that, hey, it needs to be operated in such a way that it has minimum impact on not only the wildlife area, but those duck clubs. So We'll see, you know, in the future how this this works out. As you guys also know, when that bypass floods, it just becomes a huge <clears throat> attractant for a lot of waterfowl that just sit there and aren't really disturbed. I mean, there's a few guys that go out in boats and hunt that area, but therefore it could also affect, you know, the hunting throughout that entire region. If we get a massive raft of birds out there that nobody can really get to, that's going to take birds away from other areas that are not flooded what's what's the timeline on that project for potential for it to be full effect it was supposed to be in effect for this year and for some reason they delayed it but i think uh starting next year uh it will be in effect there are some lawsuits so the state has gone in and tried to condemn some of the duck clubs to essentially you know ensure that they have the state has the right to put this amount of water on them um, and that, so that's going through eminent domain proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may s- possibly slow down some things, but uh, from what I'm hearing, it's probably going to be next next fall that wow. it will be operational. Yeah, wasn't the notch um, originally supposed to be a little bit smaller, and then they? It's a lot bigger. All of these ideas so start out somebody small. Somebody got a little excited. <laughs> no. first, first you hear about these, you know, proposals, and they don't yeah. sound so bad, but then they morph into something a lot worse. Right. So you got to really stay on top of them. But that's the nature of our government, right? <laughs> yeah. This wouldn't be the first time. Well, you feel terrible. For one, for the, the public duck hunter, but, um, you know, some of those private duck clubs that you're talking about, you know, there's a lot of money invested in those clubs Absolutely. that are, are essentially – useless overnight if you cannot use a uh, recreation property during the time of recreation. Um, so a huge financial loss as well, where, you know, those guys historically have, yeah, you get flooded out, but I mean, you're not flooded out for two and a half months of duck season. Yeah. And many of them have state and federal conservation eas- easements yeah, on them. That, right? You would think Which makes that, no sense that in my would brain. <laughs> preclude them from ever going forward yeah. with this project. But unfortunately, the easements are enough to, to block it. Hmm. And so then I think, too, of all the money the state and the federal governments have there. spent trying to put high-quality waterfowl habitat on these areas, and now they're going to flood them eight feet high? I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah. again, that's our government, right? Yeah. They do some interesting things, and I don't think uh, there's always a, 
a lot of thought involved with uh, some of these things as to the, what the implications long-term may be. How has the winter up in the basin been this year compared to previous? Because I know down here we've been dry in the last couple of weeks. Some of our properties are underwater right now. So what are you guys seeing up there for your winter? Same thing. We started off real slow. Um, gosh, I would say, um, actually, I might have mentioned this earlier. We went from 35% snowpack and then over the course of two weeks jumped up to 95 96%, something like that. So didn't have a whole lot of storms out of the gate. Uh, real warm. I was golfing a lot in the, <laughs> into the early winter. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but we had some really good storms. Um, the snow's almost gone now in my backyard. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been interesting. We haven't had the real cold like we typically get either. Um, even when that cold front came down, it didn't come down to Klamath. Um, you know, we were still in the forties when, you know, it was in the twenties and the teens up there and just North of us in Oregon. So, um, it just came down right to us and didn't quite quite get to us. So it's been different different for sure. Um, how it is comparatively, I don't know, as long as I've lived in Klamath. I mean, you hear the old timers talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the, the snow banks and stuff like that. And, you know, people complain on social media about, you know, not getting the snow off the roads. And then people come back and be like, you have no idea what snow is, you know? So, um, you know, if you listen to the old timers, it's definitely not the same, but, uh, in my experience, it's kind of hit or miss. I think we've had a couple of really good, um, snow years since I've, since I've lived there. Uh, but it's, it's generally, you get a snow and then it melts off and you get another snow and it melts off. And, you know, just so long as it's accumulating up in the mountains. The sad thing is, is you drive across the the pass right now, and it's just it's 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 disappearing pretty quick. Yeah. So, how much you know. does that the snowpack up there affect your guys's water availability? Because here, I mean, for we hunt in rice country, that's that's all it is. Is if you have water in the reservoirs, everybody gets water for their rice. And obviously, you're not doing the complete same up there. But how much does that have an impact on? the season going forward. It, it can a lot in terms of sustainability on Upper Klamath Lake. I mean, we need that snowpack up there in order to, for our stream flows into Upper Klamath Lake to, to maintain elevations. Otherwise, the lake just plummets, you know. Um, so the interesting thing about our basin is we kind of have two different sides. We've got the Cascade Mountains to our west, so we're definitely looking at snowpack there because there's streams that come into Upper Klamath Lake there. But to our east, we've got the Sprague and Williamson systems, which are generally drier systems. So when I personally am watching the snowpack, I'm I'm pinpointing those locations further east because those are some of our biggest drivers in terms of understanding what our, what our water year is going to look like or our inflows in Upper Klamath Lake are going to look like because generally the Cascade streams, they're short-lived and boom, they're gone. But if we get a good snowpack out east, you know, our Williamson River inputs are going to are going to stay higher and hopefully hopefully help the lake out in the long term. In a year like last year where we were just inundated with snow and rain all year down here, did you guys get any of that those storms? Was it a, a good, you know, winter for you guys? I would say it was a it was a better winter and it was an even better spring. Okay. Um you know, we ended up getting, I think, up to 200% snowpack last year, but oh, it, all wow. came, it all came late in the spring, and then it just rained, you know, um, <clears throat> which is good and bad. I mean, it's good from a water management perspective. 
it's bad from a grower's perspective, you know, because, you know, it came at the time when everybody's chomping at the bit to get out in the fields and get mm-hmm. to farming. Um, and so uh, there's, there's, there's pros and cons to that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, it was a good water year. And surprisingly, under the um, – the ESA rules or what we're living under is the interim operations plan right now. We didn't even get a full supply of water. So it's a, it's a broken system mm-hmm. and we just need to figure out how to fix it. And for the folks that, that have never hunted up there or been up in that area, I mean, when we talk about agriculture, what are the crops? What is the main focus of the ag in that area? Um, I'll start with my district. My district is primarily a grain district, um, various grains depending on on the the market. I would I would say, um, but uh, over the years we've started transitioning into more row crops. We're growing potatoes. There's alfalfa coming in. We've actually transitioned from a lot of pasture over to alfalfa recently. Uh, well, I'll say pasture and grains into alfalfa. Um, <clears throat> Mint has been growing out there, although I don't think there's any any coming up, and I don't think there was any last year. Um, I think I said potatoes. Did I say potatoes? Mm-hmm. Um, you get off of my district and pasture. Um, you get off of my district, and you'll find you'll find onions, um, garlic, um, obviously more pasture and alfalfa, um, uh, horseradish. Um, I'm sure there's others that I'm missing. We we do have some that are growing the lettuces and things like that up there. Um, But that's about it. I mentioned earlier we have a very short growing season, so we're we're real limited in what Mm -hmm. we can grow. Um, So if they can grow it in in the short growing season, I think it's been tried. And (laughs) and so we're kind of where we are. Uh, Amazingly, carrots, I'm surprised they don't take off there because they're the best carrots. Oh, really? Oh, my goodness. They're amazing. I wish we grew more of them, but I don't even know if any were grown last year. But, um, yeah, carrots come out real good up there. (laughs) From what I've heard from the biologists, something like uh, half of all the food resources – coming chiefly from the cereal grains are part of a waterfowl's diet up in the Klamath Basin. So, I mean, if agriculture was ever to go away, yeah. it would have a huge devastating impact on the, you know, birds and the flyway. And, I mean, they really have very little reason to stop in the Klamath Basin at all. So keeping uh, the farmers whole is it's so critical. I mean, they're helping not only to get the water to the refuge, but also, you know, providing these food resources that are just critical, um, both in the fall and then back in the uh, spring yeah, when they stage before they go breed. Yeah. And you know, the beauty of my district is we are the only district that has year-round water rights. So one of our one of our irrigation practices is we flood our fields up in the fall winter to uh, improve the soil moisture profile uh, come spring. And then, uh, then they'll come behind that and plant grain, and the grain typically doesn't even need any irrigation beyond that. It just grows naturally. Um, <clears throat> but the beauty of that is, like, and we put we we were we were promoting this when they closed down the refuges a couple of years ago. Is that you know KDD were the only restaurant in town because we literally were. Um, we were the only place with water. We were the only place with energy for these birds. Um, and I mean, as a result, it was where all the birders wanted to go. It was where anybody that loves birds, you know, they were they were hanging out on on my district, you know, taking a look at, you know, the ecosystem, if you will, because that's really what was happening. I mean, there was a field we pulled up to one one day, 
we had bald eagles in one corner. We had, you know, sprig out there like crazy, um, snows, uh, Canada. Um, I don't remember seeing mallards. It wouldn't surprise me if they were out there, though. Uh, Sandhill cranes, and on top of that, we had coyotes coming out to see what they could try to drum up. So it was it was pretty amazing. It was yeah. it was quite a shot. That's awesome. And of course, those grain fields, whether they're flooded or just dry, can be phenomenal for hunting. So yeah, we absolutely. talked last time. God, some of the best hunts I've ever had in my life have been in flooded grain fields up there. Yep. So definitely, for that reason alone, it's it's critical. Yeah, that uh, agriculture. Uh, continues to you know provide those opportunities and i know too a lot of farmers up there are hunters themselves as well so i mean i think a lot of them they believe in what they're doing because they want to conserve the birds and have that hunting heritage protected in the area right yeah i i think i think largely you know our growers get a bad rap thinking that they're after one thing and that's chasing chasing you know their crop and which results in dollars but you know, I don't know one guy that wouldn't stop when they're harvesting to when they're starting to see pheasant run out, you know, and make sure that they're not chopping any of them up. And, you know, um, you start talking to some of my growers, especially, and them them seeing the, the condition the refuges are in. I mean, you start seeing tears well up in their eyes. This is, I mean, they grew up out there. Yeah. So they're used to seeing the skies blackened with birds, you know, and the sound of it. And, you know. I've been I've been finding myself using the term silent spring a lot, you know, the the famous book that Rachel Carson wrote. Um, you know, and and I think a lot of these guys are feeling that and witnessing that, you know, compared to their youth, you know, and seeing the way things used to be. It's it's emotional, you know. It's like seeing your neighborhood kind of kind of just go south, go in the wrong direction. So, um, yeah, they're they're very passionate. My growers especially are are very passionate about the work that we're trying to do right now to to start healing these refuges, heal our ecosystem and and our neighborhood. Yeah. Well, before we sign off today, I just kind of give you guys an open mic if you want to touch on anything else that we may have looked over for either of you, Mark or Scott, that you want to let the listeners know beforehand or if we've covered everything. All right. I just want to say again, I so appreciate what Scott and KDD do. Um, the Klamath Basin is so critical to what we're doing here at CWA. I mean, if that goes away, um, it's going to have a massive negative impact on our flyway. And not only in terms of the number of birds that we get coming here, you know, out of Canada and other places up north, but just our local birds again. I don't think we can really fully address our mallard problem, and we do have a mallard problem in our state. I mean, we know that the breeding numbers the last few years have been way off, um, but we cannot even begin to address that if we don't fix what's going on up in Klamath. Mm -hmm. So if folks want to do everything they can to support, you know, higher mallard populations elsewhere in California, you got to fix what's going on up there. So, yeah, it's just... It's a critical area for waterfowl and the, and the birds that, you know, California hunters most want to target. And what, what, what can uh, a CWA member do to help the fight? You know, we get that a lot. You know, what, what can they do to get the word out or make a difference? Well, certainly when we do, you know, our boater voice alerts, participate in those and contact whoever we're asking them to contact, you know, those decision makers, they need to hear from these folks. 
Um, but also, I think just a random call or email to your congressman or even your state legislator would be good. You know, let them know it's an issue of concern. And uh, that tends to, if enough people do that within a district, that gets attention. Okay. And people, you know, the representatives will be a lot more responsive. For me as a lobbyist to go in and talk with these folks is one thing. Um but for them to hear from their own constituents, that is much more powerful than anything I could ever provide. So really getting involved with your, your local district, your local politics is important. Gotcha. I would echo, echo that. Uh, they definitely want to hear from their constituents. Um, to add to that, I would say, you know, if somebody's listening to this and calls their congressman up and says, hey, I heard Scott on on the, the podcast and uh, I want, they need money, <laughs> you know, they've got a lot of good ideas. They're trying to do a lot of good stuff. Please support getting money, funneling yeah. money up there to start doing yeah. some of this stuff. And we're not the only ones. I mean, I'll add, you know, um, in addition to the replumbing uh, piece on the 80 canal, we're also proposing to punch the North canal across state line also and give the refuge additional opportunities to manage water the way that they see is best for the refuge. So we'll be able to plumb water out to uh, the east side of the refuge and into the P1 lateral out there, hopefully very soon. Um, so that's just one thing. Um, you know, from a from a project, reclamation project perspective, there's a real strong push. It's called, um, <clears throat> what, are, what are they calling it? It's uh, uh, just a flow-through concept. The flow-through concept is basically to run water through the entire project again, fill up the entire system, and and create it in a way like a massive oxbow, if mm. you will. So water's running through the entire project, back through treated wetlands and coming back cleaner than when it went in and then back into the river. So, you know, that's a massive restoration project that I think uh, – I think that everybody should be getting behind from yeah. an ecosystem perspective, a refuge perspective. It helps water users. It helps fish. Um, there's just all kinds of wins on the table there with that concept. So um, any level of support your membership wants to support in any of the restoration work we're talking about up there would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Nice. Well, thank you. Appreciate yeah. it. Your thank time. you guys for yeah. coming out and yeah. talking to us about it because it, it, it does help. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Save It for the Blind podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.